To ship, of course. Welcome to the Ship Show. It's time again to talk about release engineering, DevOps, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's with me on this crisp fall evening? This is EJ Sarmella from Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Yusuf at BuildScientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com. How was everyone's week? It's good. Great. It's been a pretty interesting week. Uh, how was uh, your travels to the East Coast? Oh, it was, uh, it was pretty good. Uh, so, so I was in Boston, and it, actually, it's funny. I think we're going to talk about this later in the show. You and I kind of passed each other in the sky because you were out in SF, right? Yeah, and so spent the first part of the week in Boston uh, at the Business of Software Conference. It was a three-day conference of entrepreneurial stuff. Uh, really interesting, lots of great people. A little bit of, of drama, but we kind of worked through it. In fact, Yusuf and I were talking about that. You know, it was very interesting. And then we did the uh, DevOps meetup that I mentioned in the previous show in New York, and that was well attended. We was a kind of intimate group of people, so I, I got to do the talk about DevOps stuff, and then we kind of actually, it kind of turned into a support meeting at the bar which was fun. We got to swap stories and talk about stuff. A lot of, actually, a couple good uh, talk segments came out of that, and so we'll probably be talking about those with Sasha's around since she she's, loves all the DevOps stuff. I uh, had a, a couple good questions from people that I think she'd, she'd be a good, good person to speak to because I was kind of like, I don't know how the DevOps people handle a lot of that particular stuff. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll uh, talk about more of that in a future show. But... Um, so our topic for this particular episode is rolling your own. When is it time to uh, buck up and write your own tool or Jenkins plugin or script and give up on trying to find or shoehorn an open source tool into your environment? We're going to talk about some of the things to consider in that decision, plus ways you can make that decision cheaper if you end up taking that route. But first up, as we always do, news and views. It came out this week that Firefox is moving to a stub installer. I pointed this out because I thought it was interesting. People who are students of, of Mozilla history know that there was a stub installer way back in the day that would, you, you know, you download this, you know, 500K thing or 300K thing and launch it, and then it would go download the components for uh, the browser or mail news and all that kind of stuff. And they ended up abandoning it. So it's interesting to see them kind of move back to this. Uh, Why did they abandon it in the first place? Well, so apparently, I mean, I don't know all the details, but I think... There was, when you have a stub installer and then you download it, you have to then download all the components, right? And so there were a lot of failure modes that were possible. And and so I think fundamentally what's changed is network speeds are a little faster. But I I think it was just the complexity of doing a stub installer. I I just don't think they had a lot of, I don't want to say QA, but it, it was just a complex solution to that problem. And so actually, I know that the stub installer was a large part of like SeaMonkey, which was the full suite product. When Firefox came along and it was like a 5 meg download or an 8 meg download, they moved to just go download the Firefox full installer. Uh, I actually mentioned this on Twitter. One of, one of the um, Mozilla people that I used to work with actually was saying they'd done a bunch of research and the reason they were making the shift is because they found that there's a huge drop off in installs if they didn't download the installer or the installation was, wasn't fast enough. But I'm not quite sure how a stub installer solves that problem because it's not like you don't have to download the bits. You're just downloading one package and then downloading another package. But I don't know. They probably have some more data on that somewhere. I just thought it was interesting that one of those, everything old is new again, you know, bell bottom and all that. So The next story we came across was kind of interesting. Uh, it turns out uh, apparently there's a, a new Linux distribution that's using Git to do... Not just package management, but like, uh, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but the entire file system is on Git. So uh, I'm actually looking at the GitHub page right now, and it's like the root of the tree is Etsy, home, lib, mount. There's uh, VM, Linux, the kernels in there. It's very interesting. I don't know how that works, just because that's a lot of binaries to be storing. And so, like, do you download the entire Git repo? Or, wow. I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of weird, but... Interesting, you know, you always see interesting uses of Git, and this is yet another one. So, so, so you just so clone this, this to, to like this... a thumb drive or something? I, you know, I don't know. Sorry. I mean, no, I, I, I don't know. Um, I guess the distribution is called Web Converger. Web Converger 15 is the first Linux distribution to be automatically updated from a GitHub repo. The ch root of the OS is kept natively in Git's format. And oh, and fuse mounted. That's what they're doing. So you use GitFS. And you don't have to download the repo because it's a fuse mount. It's supposed to fulfill the web kiosk use case. Interesting. So the, the, it's like a, the article mentions Chrome OS. So it's kind of like a Chrome OS 
not competitor, but but if you didn't want to use Chrome OS, you could use this on a web kiosk. I don't know, interesting use to get. I was just going to ask if this is uh, a fuse-mounted system, and it sounds sounds like it is kind of an interesting use of a merge of um, fuse and Git. Yeah. Right, so help help the uninitiated. What's a fuse-mounted something? It's a it's file it's a file system over user space. So um, instead of you having to have you know, like you've got your standard file systems like EST three, four, whatever compiled, you know, modules compiled into your kernel. You can run this particular module in user space and mount your file systems accordingly. So you don't have to actually build. As far as I know, you don't have to actually build this stuff into at least this particular Git FS directly into your kernel. There's a layer above it that allows you to kind of interface with your whatever well, operating system layer that is that handles that type of stuff. Well, and it's more than that, right? I mean, so the fuse part it gives you the hooks to do all that stuff. But so the the interesting use cases are you can use user space tools to generate a file system. So for instance, one of the other popular ones is SFHFS, where it uses SCOPY and SFT or SFTP, one of the two, to basically expose what looks like a file system mount, but it's actually over a user land SSH connection. So it can be secure and you can use it remotely and you don't have to do any special setup. If you could SSH that machine, you could mount it on your local system. So I use this on my laptop all the time. It's actually really great. Another one is MP3FS, which so I'm one of those crazy people that have has their music collection as a set of FLAC files. But if you need to convert it to MP3, there there's a fuse file system that will make amount of this of it'll auto convert all the flac files to mp3 if you try to use them so it's actually a lot of different weird use cases that you can use with fuse and so apparently this is one of them and i never heard of the git fs stuff but that's kind of interesting clever speaking of git uh perforce released uh last week their uh, git fusion we're actually going to be talking with them uh in a uh, episode soon about uh how they're blending perforce and git together but we thought we'd mention it because they have some blog posts that have some details about wh- what that interface looks like and why why it's important. But yeah, it's interesting to see them doing kind of a, a front end to Perforce that's like totally different in terms of, of what you'd expect uh, an interface. It's a, it's a Git interface. So Finally, tonight we have a link to a couple of blog posts. Tom Dale wrote a post uh, about the open source community and then there was a conversation about uh, the differences in the generations between the open source community. Did you guys uh, see these articles? Yeah, I, I yeah. speed read through some of them. <laughs> yeah. What did you guys think? I, I feel like the older shared tool or open source communities, uh, I think we were talking about... Um, SourceForge? SourceForge, yeah, if you wanted a good open source hub. But I feel like the tools that came out of there were way more fully baked and fully cooked. But on the, the flip side... I can understand totally. I have some projects up in GitHub where I've just, I needed source control and I didn't want to host it because I knew that I'd be chipping away at these projects um, in my off hours or whenever I had some downtime at different companies. So I didn't want to just host it at home and worry about SSH traffic in and out. So I could understand just like lobbing something up there and somebody else comes across it and decides that they're going to fork it or send pull requests to, from their fork code bases. So it just sounds like one guy was sort of complaining that there's a whole bunch of crap in GitHub, and another guy was saying that um, it is what it is, and I'm sort of with the is what it is guy. Uh, I think it, there's a lot of caveat mTOR with regards to uh, with regard to uh, what you find in GitHub. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm on, I'm on par with you, uh, EJ. I mean, I think the thing with uh, the, the title of the blog, or one of the blogs, is Generation Gap, and I, I'm not so sure that there is a large, gen, you know, generational gap. I mean, you know, GitHub as a tool, you know, it's it's unique in what it does, but it obviously builds on, um, you know, SourceForge's kind of, uh, or Google Code kind of public repository um, concept. But, but, you know, here's the thing. Uh, if you're going to be using code off of GitHub, and I think somebody had mentioned either it was the generation gap or the Tom Dale post had mentioned that uh, somebody had put up some sort of Node.js module and um, it did an RM-RF on user local. Well, use at your own risk. It's open source for a reason. You should do some sort of a basic code review. I, I generally do that when I get clone repos off of GitHub and, and you know take a look at what it is that you're working with. And you know it's open source for, for a reason. I, I don't think that if you're going to be uh, forking code or pulling down code from GitHub that you kind of have a lot of leverage to sit and complain about, well, this code did this or this code did that or well, you know it's not up to production scale, etc. 
But that's always the case. I mean, so I, I think the post really is talking about the generational shift in what we define as an open source community. Not, it, you know, whether RMRF user local or whatever. I mean, yes, that's been a problem always. But I was actually talking with a friend about this recently. The fact that there's, there are a generation of programmers now who never had to fight to get Linux in their enterprise or at work. Now, like if you're building a web site, web service, you know, whatever, cheap virtualized Linux instances is how you do that. And there's no question to that anymore. So I think the the part about the generation gap is, and uh, I think one of the articles says this, is that there's a bunch of things that are just assumed always existed. So cheap, easy version control that's easy to fork, i.e. GitHub, that, you know, there's not a sense that certain projects were developed in a different way. So a great example, there was a, a, a couple months ago, three or four months ago, big a big push against the Apache project. And they were like, the Apache people are a bunch of fascists and they're not letting me do whatever and blah, 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 blah. And there's a big to-do about that. And really what that is indicative of is, is this sort of generation gap where you have Apache saying, tons of people use our software. You have to be part of this community process to be a part of the you know Apache project. And that's how we do software. And then you have a bunch of new people saying, well, I can just fork stuff on GitHub and that's fine. Why do I have to do this, right? So whether or not, you know, what side you're on, the reason I brought it up in this week's news and views is because I thought it was an interesting discussion. The one thing I actually did say on Twitter is, I'd be curious what you guys think of this. Uh, I think the part I do find frustrating, uh, one of the posts makes this the point that he doesn't know which, uh, I'll just read it, he says, I honestly don't know which one of these is better and any determination about which one would have to do more with your own values and biases, but it's happening and it's clear which one has more momentum and is growing the fastest. So what wait, I what is it, wait what is he comparing in that sentence? Sorry, he's talking about the generational gap. So so in other words, the big monolithic projects like Apache Mozilla Linux kernel versus the nimbler Node.js Rails modules that all use GitHub and fork all over the place. He's talking those two camps, right? And he's mm-hmm. I think he's saying that the GitHub style has more momentum and is growing the fastest. Uh, I think that's true. But the, and the one point I made on Twitter is. The part I find disconcerting is that we kind of skipped the conversation about which is net-net better in a business sense, in an open source sense, for a community sense. We kind of skipped over that. And it's a shame that we skipped that conversation. But even more frustratingly, I think there's a, why would we even have that conversation? There's sort of a push of, this is the way it is, why would we even talk about that? So, so I, I, I think there's room for both, Paul. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, it just depends on what you're going to be doing. Um uh, you know, if if you want to be able to find some good, you know, relying tools type stuff, and you're looking for, you know, some some libraries that somebody's working on, you know, you may be able to find some stuff on GitHub. If you're looking for something a little more uh, mature and that's gone through their incubation process, go go to Apache or Mozilla. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think that there's a sort of a, a split between the two. That doesn't have to be. You know, there may be two camps, but there's no reason why you can't switch between both or use both. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we'll see. It, 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 it'll be interesting to see. I, I guess the one point I would make is that I think the term open source and open source community, quote unquote, is evolving into something that is different from what it traditionally was. And I, both of these posts, uh, I will link to them in the show notes. You should go read them. Pose that question very interestingly. So listeners should go read it and see what they think. But either way, this is a, a good seg into tonight's topic, which is uh, roll your own and, and the cost associated with doing that. We'll be talking about that uh, as soon as we return here on the ship show. So, so our main topic tonight, rolling your own, whether it's your own tool, your own app, your own plugin for Jenkins, where's the line when rolling your own? What what should you take into account when you roll your own? And uh, we talked a little bit about this actually on one of the previous shows on our, on our automation show about buying the script and, and having to own that. So what are the considerations you should take into account when, when trying to decide whether or not you want to roll your own? EJ... You brought up this topic. Uh, was there something specific on your mind? Did you recently have to do this analysis? Sure. Uh, typically, I see this pop up when somebody in my organization is working with some product or some new tooling, and they're just sort of slapping at it like a 
baby in a bath. Right? They're not really focusing or trying to read any sort of manual. They're just like having a very cursory glance at these things. And, and sometimes the result is, oh, we should write our own thing and it will be better than these dozens of other things that already exist in the wild. And again, I, I could come back to a trillion different Maven plugins where this is the case where some poor set of documentation or misunderstanding how something works and all of a sudden we have this blossom of plugins that do all the same things and then we own the code, right? Um, so I was just curious what other people's expectations are or experiences in the past have been with uh, regard to creating something custom for something that you know exists out in the wild. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I think, and you see this in software all the time, right? It's easier to write code than to read someone else's. And so much, I mean, you look at a, a lot of plugins for Jenkins or Maven or whatever it is, a lot of times the documentation is not that great. The you know, code's not documented. I've actually seen certain projects where it's open on GitHub, and so you can download it, but all of the, like, host names are hard-coded because it's they kind of just did this dumping of the code. And so you you still see all these plugins, and they all sort of do the same thing, but none of them uh, are really kind of... Uh, I mean, Sasha, you, you brought this up, actually, when we were talking about automation. You're, we were talking about custom scripts for that sort of stuff. Yep. We were talking about the fact that the further you go down a custom road, the less pool of people might help solve your problem. But the flip side, I think, is also true when you know somebody is, is building a tool and they throw it out there. Sometimes it's hard to actually... It could actually be the best tool ever, and it could be the perfect plugin, and it has all the documentation, but it's almost uh, how do you get the community and how do you kind of get people to gravitate towards it so that it does become the official whatever plugin, the official Chuck Norris Jenkins plugin? Which uh, my my impression is that the good stuff gets attention. Really, I mean, I don't know that there are like great things that have trouble getting attention. Look at Jordan Sissel and his FPM. You know, I mean, a lot of people use that. It's fantastic, and most of us have just seen it. I saw it at a. I saw him present at Velocity last year, and I so, thought that was awesome. What what is it? FPM, FM package manager? No. Translates one package into another type. So oh. if you have Deb and you need an RPM, his thing will do that for you. If you have a directory of files and you need to make that a Deb to dump on a Ubuntu box, his tool will do that. It will also make you an RPM. It will also do all kinds of awesome things. I love FPM. Everybody should buy that man of beer. And it just you know, a lot of that stuff gets a lot of good grassroots followings. Right. I don't think that's really a problem, and I think you need to think really hard about your edge case before you start busting out the pearl, you know, seriously. Funny, because... And, oh, sorry, you should, I just think that you should also think about how you can extend what you're already using in a way that makes it all still fairly flexible, right? Yeah, that, of, that, like, that's another excellent point here, is that... Uh, so here, here's, another, here's another use case that I have that happened just recently, right? So we're using uh, the EC2 plugin for Knife to create from a base Ubuntu AMI, a set of instances, right? But there's nothing once we, because then what we do is we use Chef to bootstrap uh, those instances with our code and our configuration settings and our accounts and whatever else. And that once that instance is pristine, it doesn't go live at all. What we want to do is take that instance and create an AMI from that instance and then use another tool that actually will blast it across load balance or auto scaling group. But anyway, the point being is, so I asked the, I asked the Chef community today, I said, whoever's waxing their legs with duct tape, you should stop. No, uh, I asked them, I said, is there, is there any interest in this if I added this to the EC2 plugin? And instantly everyone sort of jumped down my throat saying, no, 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 this is crazy. You can't create these things. But if you're familiar with the console, this is a, a single click operation, right? So this should be pretty simple to add. But Whoa, what console? The AWS console? Yeah. I hate consoles. Yeah, so do I. Um, but anyway, the point being is like it, it's a pretty simple thing to do, um, and it wasn't that much more code to add to the EC2 plugin for our case. Um, so we added it to ours, and I would really like to give it back to the community, but it just seemed that nobody was interested. And the same the same applies to um, another another tooling that we built up for uh, building ATG apps with Maven. And these set of plugins did not exist. In fact, when we went to ATG and said, hey, look at these wonderful things that we've written for you uh, to manage you know, manifests and all this kind of stuff based on Maven dependencies, like, oh, hey, cool, look, we've written some ant tasks. I guess the point that I'm trying to make here, though, is that there, there is a place 
for rolling your own stuff. But I keep stumbling into these areas where stuff already exists and people just haven't bothered to even try, right? Well, so it's an education thing more than right. anything else. I guess. Well, so so I actually don't know that I agree with you, Sasha. That people always gravitate to the best of breed or the best tool. I, I think that is often the case. And well, I, I think, think it gets attention. I, I don't know that it's actually always. Sorry, go ahead. But I, I think oh. that it, it automatically generates attention. Yeah, no, I think that's true. But I also think that there can be cases where, and EJ, this is kind of what you were saying, where it's like. You know, we wrote some really awesome stuff. It was really great for us. We wanted to to do more, and we kind of threw it out there. And it was like this solves our problem in this way. And it and and if your problem meets kind of these criteria, then it'll solve that problem too. And and you can oftentimes get EJ what you were saying, where it's like you kind of get the baby slap in the water, and they're not right. And then you kind of the outcome is like, well, I I could write this myself. And the answer is, yeah, you could write it yourself, but is it going to take into account, this is why we have 38 plugins that do the same thing for Maven or Jenkins or whatever it is, and they're all broken in subtle different ways. And I think, I actually, I guess the only point I'm making is that I think it's, it is true that awesome stuff does have people gravitate towards it, or can, but that's not always the case. And a lot of times, I think it actually has to do with, it's GitHub is not the best place to publicize it's it may be the best place to publicize the code, but it's not the best place to do the marketing around that, and sometimes that's harder. Yeah, well, one of the things that I was going to mention was I, I actually have a, a couple of use cases for you know rolling your own. Um, there are two types of tools that I think in my role as a release engineer that I've either had to roll my own or uh, I've seen other people rolling their own. So one of them is kind of like installation tools, you know, deployment and installation tools and monitoring. Uh, right now, you go on Twitter, you go on wherever, everybody's complaining about monitoring. Oh, XYZ monitoring tool doesn't do what I want it to do. And, you know, the same thing with a lot of these, you know, deployment installation tools. What I found with a lot of these deployment installation tools is that everybody's kind of uh, trying to do everything in the kitchen sink. And, you know, there's certain parts of the tool that you don't like or don't want, or I don't want to have to use a relational database with this deployment tool. You know, why can't you just store data in flat files or whatever? I don't so, want to use Node. I don't want to use... Yeah, exactly. Whatever. I don't. I, 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 I want to be able to, to do things in a certain way. And I personally work for a financial services firm in a heavily regulated market. So bringing in tools from GitHub and outside, you got to be really careful when you do that. Um, right. in, in, in my case, other, other uh, vertical markets, you don't have to worry about that so much. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I think part of that problem, too, is that when you go and down the road of like rolling your own, you don't, you're, you're you know, it's, it's the thing I said before about you're signing the company up to support it. And a lot of times people, it, it's unclear whether or not there's, there's a community level of support or you're just buying someone's weekend script, you know, quote unquote, buying it to then have to support it yourself. I, I you see this a lot, my impression actually in the Ruby community where it's it's almost easier to take the, the and I've heard this uh, from a couple of friends who do Ruby developments like yeah it did like 80% of what I wanted but it didn't do it in the way I wanted so I ended up forking it you know and then you have just all of these your product is built on forks of 13 Ruby gems and it becomes kind of a nightmare yeah, the, the other thing that I wanted to say is um, to, to Sasha's point you know I, I think people like Jordan Sisler are awesome they're rare too. I mean, you know, he he wrote FPM, he wrote Logstash, and he's actually, I guess, full time developing on Logstash. That's rare. I don't think that you see. Um, I mean, I can think of a couple of other people, Koske, who who built Jenkins, and maybe there's some other people that I'm I'm, I'm not. There aren't coming to mind, but that that's a rarity. I mean, most sure. I think people who put their stuff up on GitHub, um, they just put it up there and they kind of say, well, you know, if you're interested, and in where. Yeah, exactly. You can just yeah. look it and, uh, you know, I, I, I got to say, one of the things that, that I really like about Logstash is that, you know, Jordan, you know, basically said that I've never used this in production and it's embarrassing. He, he's actually <laughs> said that on a number of occasions on Twitter and, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, for him saying that, but do all uh, tool developers and one, do they all care? No. And two, do they actually take the initiative to, you know, get out there and, and improve the tool or whatever? No. But... Uh, yeah. 
maybe this is a super quick rehash of what everyone was sort of agreeing upon earlier, but one of the things that I try and stay away from when we're considering rolling our own is, do you want to manage that code, right? So when your actual product is branching and requires a change to that plugin, now you have to branch the plugin and you're maintaining, you know what I'm saying? Do you want that hassle? Right. If not, let's try and, you know, if it adds a couple extra lines of code to a POM or build.xml or whatever, or some funky workaround with a couple of plugins within Jenkins, is that better than maintaining your own set of, I don't know if you ever looked at some of the jelly code that goes into Jenkins plugins, but it's not pretty. Yeah. Um, but a- anyway, like, that's that's my biggest nightmare is to own and maintain that kind of garbage going forward, especially if it's a real senior developer that wrote real senior looking code and nobody understands it. And then you sort of own it anyway. Well, and what's interesting about that, that actually cuts both ways, right? Because if you have someone who, you know, someone on your team and they go out and they look at, you know, the five Maven plugins to do whatever, whatever it is. And they say, all of these don't work quite right. I'm going to write my own. And they're going to have a context for solving that problem. And that's fine. And, and they may solve it. But if they end up leaving or get, getting hit by a bus and they don't do, even do a good internal handoff, you sort of have the same problem as if they were an external person on some team that wrote a plugin, right? And it, so in some sense, the discussion about rolling your own is like when you have – is more fundamental in terms of if you have plugins that you rely on, it's like how do you make make – whether or not you roll your own or use someone else's, how do you make sure that there is a team, both internally on your, your local team, whether it's two people or the entire team, and externally, if, if it is a plugin that you're using, that actually knows what's going on, making sure that bus factor is not one. I, I, you know, I will share a story, and I, I, you know, I, I hesitate a little bit because I, I, didn't want to, I don't want to toot my own horn too much, but I, I did end up writing uh, a release process framework that's open source and it's been used by a bunch of different size companies it's still in use it's used for all sorts of things uh it doesn't get a lot of hasn't gotten a, a ton of buzz uh and it turned out it was one of those projects where it's like i need a framework to do a certain set of things and we wrote it internally and it turned out being so useful in terms of the flexibility to do different things that we decided to get it open sourced. And it wasn't abandonware. And I think actually that's the big leap that I personally made. It's like, I'm going to support this. There's a mailing list for it that's pretty quiet, actually. But if you ask a question, you're going to get an answer. If you file a bug, you're going to get an answer. And in terms of rolling your own, it's like that's one of the things about if you sign up to do that, you and it's going to be like an open source thing. Like you're basically signing up to commit in some fashion to supporting that. And are you willing to do that both internally if you write your own or if you write your own and throw it up on GitHub? Like if you don't care, then fine. It doesn't really matter. But maybe that's actually one of the core things to think about um, that I had to think about. Well, and, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is the idea of, well, if three, four, and five X, Y, and Z projects went 80% of what I needed but not 100, why don't you finish up writing what you need and extend it and then submit a pull request? So, I mean, to create, to, to cite a really simple example, uh, as I work on this workstation bootstrapping project I've got, I grabbed the VirtualBox cookbook, which was originally written by Josh Timberman and is very flexible, and I added Windows support for it, and then I submitted a pull request last week. So now that cookbook has VirtualBox support or Windows support for VirtualBox. So, uh, well, so let me ask you, let me, cause, cause, so I actually, I totally agree with you and I think you're totally right. Were you given time to actually do that? Is that something you did on your own? Cause I, I, and the reason I ask is, is I think a lot of times it's like, I have a problem I need to solve and I have to get it solved. And then after I get that solved, I've got like 18 things that yeah. I got to do. And the thing is, is there's not time like, you know what, why don't we carve, you know, this is the Google argument, 20%, but not even that. It's like, why don't we encourage good behavior of letting our developers actually submit that code back? A lot of times there's like a legal, you have to go through legal and it becomes a big thing. And so people in your position who are like, yeah, I did this cool thing, but I don't have to deal with the 18 hoops I have to go through. I mean, I think from an organizational cultural perspective, that's actually worth examining too. Do you make it easy to 
become a part of the community of the the plugin that you're using. So do you do start getting best of breed plugins for whatever particular purpose? Yeah, the way I usually look at it with this stuff is I did the development on Company Chime. I, so I'm a, I'm a consultant, so I get paid by the hour. We did the cookbook development on Company Time where we, did, we made it work on Windows, which is probably an hour's worth of work. And then I did all of the administrative work for the pull request and things like that on my own time. I don't really consider that stuff part of my work for the client or anything. And uh, I kind of consider it the other way around sometimes in that I just gave them a lot of the, the, the work, because I did a lot of the work in my personal time, too. I shouldn't tell you that, probably, but a lot of this stuff is so interesting that I tend to work on it on my own anyway. There's kind of a blur between oh, yeah, totally. the problems I'm solving for, for some clients in that, you know, I actually spent all day Saturday a few weeks ago working on my, my workstation bootstrap problems. And uh, one other example I want to use is actually today I listened to my teammates discuss a couple of things. Uh, we have an OpenStack implementation, and what they've done instead of touching any of the OpenStack chef code is they have an extended set of chef solo cookbooks that they use to make any adjustments so that they don't pollute the existing OpenStack stuff. And uh, today they were talking about oh, some kind of a, a filter for OpenStack compute. Anyway, it's Python modules and things, and they were trying to figure out how to build this, this, this filter without actually making changes to the Python modules, which would then pollute the, the code base that came from OpenStack. And I was like, guys, why don't you just change the code base and then submit a pull request? There you go. Yeah, I, I, think, you, I think you've touched on something really important here is, to, is two things, right? So the, the first one being, if possible, where possible, it's best to update a known given entity versus throwing everything away and writing everything from scratch, right? Because again, or, it's out in the wild. People are embracing this thing, right? And or the other, forking, the other bit, or forking it and yeah, letting it yeah, sit. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Don't do yeah. that. And then <laughs> the, the other, the other option there is to um, figure out. You're saying not pollute. Uh, they're trying not to pollute the uh, the the code base that came from the product. So we actually have a separate set of Chef Solo recipes that, that add that run on top of the OpenStack implementation to do any kind of like customizations we have for users and groups and other stuff. I haven't looked at it too closely, but that's what I've seen. Okay. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, EJ, that's a really good point because a lot of times time pressures or, or the term they always use is production pressures, right? If you have a tool, and, and Jenkins is actually a bad example, and Maven probably is too because they have plugin architectures that are pretty extensive but if you have a tool that maybe the plugin architecture isn't as extensive or doesn't quite do what you want it's really really easy under production pressure to be like you know i have a source code to jenkins or whatever i could change this right as opposed to well no why don't we try to like work to get the plugin architecture to do what i needed to do that's oftentimes hard you know oftentimes you'll people will do that they'll make a change to the core code instead of doing it in the layers that sasha was talking about and it's it's so easy to fall in that trap, and it's, then you're screwed because then you, you can never update your other stuff. Yeah, you really, you're sort you really of are. You know, well, you know, it's interesting. You got to merge, and yeah, forget it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's interesting. I know of a, a large yeah organization that you know everybody would know their name if I said who they were, but they had a Bugzilla installation, and it, this was an interesting case because they hired someone to work on Bugzilla and that person was like worked with the Bugzilla team the open source and, and contributed patches but it got to a point where you know this organization wanted a bunch of different things out of Bugzilla that, that it took the community and the open source version longer to decide whether or not they wanted to do that they had other priorities and it got to the point where that organization now has their own Bugzilla they there's no That's merging terrible. They, they will never be able to pull it. And what's interesting is they got a lot of the features they wanted about a year to 18 months before Bugzilla got them, but there's no convert. There's no conversion. There's no nothing. There's like, they, they can't ever merge that back together. What's interesting about that is yes, that is terrible. On the other hand, I don't necessarily know that I fault them because again, the question was, do you never roll your own? Do you always roll your own? And they made a conscious decision. We're willing to hire an engineer and pay a, an engineer to solely support our unique Bugzilla instance. And I believe they still have, I mean, that they now, the, the web tools team now owns that Bugzilla instance. So, you know, I don't want to like personally say it's right or wrong. It's just 
there's a co- there's actually a relatively large cost to doing that, and that's part. It's easy to say like, oh, you know, we changed this Bugzilla table; it's not a big deal, right? When you're in the trenches, but from a business perspective, it's like you're signing up for a huge cost. And and Sasha, EJ, Yusuf, you all kind of mentioned like that's the the big elephant in the room that is sometimes invisible, but then becomes visible very quickly when it stomps you on the head. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Bugzilla thing, Paul, because I, I have a similar story. I used to work for a company that had a, uh, a site that was based off of Drupal, the PHP-based content management system. Uh-huh. And for some reason, they decided to, you know, hack Drupal. And the code base became so divergent from, you know, core Drupal that basically we ran into some issues where we couldn't really easily apply security patches. So we basically had to right. you know, do a forced upgrade from Drupal, whatever the version it was, to the next version. And let me tell you, it was extremely painful so don't do that (laughs) yeah well you know it's interesting right because they you know in the example that i gave they hired someone to support bugzilla and that's that's fine they made that decision but what is very interesting and you mentioned this and and i actually wasn't thinking of this but i i know this has been a problem or something they struggle with like all the security issues of any piece of software right I can guarantee that the the team or the people that that company is hiring are probably not the security experts on the open source side that would fix it because it's it's just hard to hire those people because usually they're working on the project and you know so whether it's security or usability or whatever absorbing that cost is not only huge but it's probably you're not going to get like the people who's who are all about Bugzilla security or all about Drupal security and that's all they do, right? You're probably not going to get those people. Or all about, you know, to EJ's example, all about Maven weirdness, right? So what, so, yeah. um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, I mean, what kind of tools have you, um, all of you rolled on your own? Dude, I don't. Mm. Ever? Well, no, not really. I mean, I haven't really, um, it's never, it hasn't been my focus until the last, like, year or two. Tooling. Mostly, I've been an infrastructure engineer, so I've, you know, I've written my share of Bash scripts. That's for sure. I've, I wrote a a JBoss management script that should never come to light ever again. <laughs> so long, long, long time ago. Oh wait, before I get before I go too far off sidetracked here, there was something that Sasha said that sort of bummed me out. I think you said you've said the same thing in the past, where uh, you guys have worked on something that's been. Uh, you're altering something and the intention is to put in a, submit a pull request, right? The uh, people are worried about working on this stuff at company time, right? But so I've made a couple of these changes in the past and the way I sort of rationalize it is I say, this is going to make the workflow here for this company, whichever company this is, excellent and faster. So it's worth the time that I'm spending on doing this thing and not writing code for your, your product. But back to the, back to the other question about the uh, roll your own bit, is uh, so, for example, I worked at a company where we had an installer-based uh, enterprise class ap- application, right? So I went through install anywhere, and one of the things that displayed was a splash screen, right? And every time the version of the product changed, it was a trip down to marketing if somebody was in, and this person, that person, and you had to talk to them about generating a splash screen, an image, a PNG or something that had a version number in it, right? So I sat down and wrote a plugin that would scrape the data from the POM file and generate an image based on your requirements, right? So nothing exists like that in the wild at all whatsoever. And that was totally something uh, specific for that company. But again, it's up in GitHub and anyone can use it. So that, I, that that was another use case. And actually, even before cruise control existed, right? So long before there was Hudson, I'm sure all of us wrote some sort of shell script, cron job, email nightmare, right? And then at some point, we all sat down and went, hey, look, this cruise control thing, without any work, does everything that these, you know, crufty Millennium Falcon duct tape bailing wire kind of things do, and I don't have to own the code anymore. I can just own the configuration, right? Oh, yeah, but try and convince those, like, curmudgeon old apps guys, right, to uh, actually adopt something new. I mean, and I've been on these teams, right, where nobody wants to do anything new because everybody's happy with their, you know, 10-year-old Perl scripts. Well... Yeah, no, no, I mean, that, that's certainly an issue. So I gave the example. We um, had a, a set of release engineering process problems we were trying to solve. And in some sense, what was interesting is that 
we ended up going, we, we did kind of the initial design internally, and we ended up going down this road of putting a bunch of the logic in, actually, to Jenkins for the release process. It or not it wasn't Jenkins, it was actually Bill Bob, but And it became problematic, and what was interesting is that I ended up writing, uh, in a different environment, a re-implementation of this tool, and that's the, the open source tool that's available. And I guess, like, I'm pretty happy with it for a couple of reasons, and I don't know that I would call it roll your own. So it's, it, there's two things. It's a framework. So in that regard, it's not a specific Maven plugin to, you know, scrape the palm file and generate an image. That's a very specific use case. It's a framework that allows you to describe release engineering processes and give some structure to them. So the point is, you can still write crufty, bad code in it, or you can write good code in it, but it's just a framework to enable you to do a set of tasks. And then the other thing was what I said earlier, is I, I really signed up to support it, so it's not abandonware. And that was, again, you talk about company costs, you know, as a as a consultant, like, I'm paying that, I'm paying myself to support this tool, right? So if you look at it from the business perspective, yeah, I mean, I, I absorbed that cost, and I did that as a conscious decision to do that, and I would probably do it again, because what was interesting is that after... I think 18 or 24 months of throwing all of the logic into BuildBot, the, the organization ended up going the other way and doing exactly doing exactly what I ended up doing because I thought doing throwing all that logic into BuildBot was a bad idea. So, uh, so uh, this is all good conversation. What's What's interesting is I don't. I, it's unclear to me that we have a clear answer on should you roll your own or not? So uh, this is definitely one of those things. We would love to hear uh, what you guys have to say, uh, our listeners out there. Like, was was rolling, has rolling your own always been a nightmare, sometimes a nightmare, like never a nightmare? Are there happy ever after roll your own stories? Um, yeah, for sure, there's, there's no set algorithm for determining whether or not you should roll your own, right? For each different type of thing, it's going to be a unique set of circumstances. So Yeah, yeah. It would so be really have... cool to hear other people's stories and horror yeah. stories. Definitely, definitely, yeah. So we'll be back in a moment uh, on the ship show. Welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're going to take a look at the Jenkins User Conference. I mentioned on the beginning of the show, EJ, that we passed in the air and you came out to San Francisco. I hope the weather was nice while I was gone. So EJ, uh, the the Jenkins User Conference was on the 30th here in San Francisco. What did you think? Correct. So I flew in on Saturday and Saturday there was actually a drink up at 21st Amendment. So a big shout out to them. It was great. I got a chance to sort of corner Kosuke and talk very point blank about certain things. Basically, build tools actually had a pretty interesting conversation about Maven and Gradle and Ant and several other tools and techniques. Then the actual conference was on Sunday and the way it worked is there's two conference rooms and in each room there's a different track going on and so you just sort of bounce back and forth between the conference rooms. And there was a couple of really interesting talks and I, I spent the whole day just sort of soaking in everything I possibly could but one of the first ones I went to was a continuous delivery discussion uh, using Maven and Nexus. And so that was sort of interesting because I know there's a lot of anti-Maven, you can't do that kind of thing because of the whole snapshot build. And so they stepped through the process and how they did it. And they sort of abandoned the snapshot entirely when building through Jenkins, which was interesting, but it was very, it was a monolithic build for a small project. It was still very interesting to see. And uh, as you sit through these talks, I was sort of drawing out the life cycle that I wanted where I am right now. And I could see how we can do both the snapshot and the non-snapshot. So anyway, so this is sort of eye-opening. The next sort of awesome conference or, or talk that happened was the uh, trunk gating. Uh, are you guys familiar with what trunk gating is? Are we talking about like how you let like, stuff into the mainline, or? Yeah, but you can do it more programmatically. Think Garrett, right? So with Garrett, I thought it was Nixon's trunk, and there was some <laughs> scandal. <we didn't laughs> no, no, not quite as uh, salacious as that. Um, but <laughs> so essentially, with something like Garrett, is you never you never hand commit stuff back to your system of record. You never do that. You let Garrett do that for you, and it has to go through some approval process. Right, and they combine Garrett with this other product called another open source tool called Zool, and this is all for OpenStack. And these slides are available on OpenStack's site or via the the CloudBees link. Um, and essentially, what this combination of things will do is so now 
Jenkins is one of the approvers. And so say you needed five people to agree on your push um, before it actually gets into the code base. So Jenkins will check out and build and make sure that your code is sound. And if it does pass and pass the unit test, like the standard build process, Jenkins gives it an approval. And the, the, real, the real secret sauce here is Zool. So just imagine there are, I'm going to sort of boil it way down from their example, but say there are two commits to one module in your code base and a third commit to a different module in the same code base, and then another commit, a fourth commit, to the original first module. And this is really tough to sort of talk through, but essentially what Zool will do is it will vet to make sure that these things are ha healthy, even to the point where that third commit that I was talking about, if that actually breaks, instead of abandoning the rest of the changes, it will try and rebuild that fourth commit without the third one in line and just see it. Oh, does this pass? Okay, yes, then I can commit this and this is all sort of, this is all healthy. So it's really sort of skynetty to see this sort of automation with regard to branching, accepting, all this stuff. A again, like, it, of course, you can still have all sorts of human intervention all along in this process, but it's really slick to see uh, um, Garrett and Zool work with Jenkins like that. Interesting. There was uh, one, one last one. So there's a, uh, there are several talks about uh, job DSLs, right? So how to create and manage your Jenkins jobs. I'm not sure uh, what your familiar familiarity is like uh, with Jenkins does, but in, historically I've worked at, at places where we have, I don't know, anywhere between 50 and maybe uh, one place we had 800 Jenkins jobs. And in the grand scheme of things, that was sort of like a, a, a measure of manhood at this conference was how many jobs does your Jenkins server manage, right? And there are people... <laughs> several Jenkins masters and several thousand jobs and blah, blah, blah. But So essentially, just imagine you're managing one of these servers and you want to change every single email address or change this nuance to your build process. And sure, there's, there's the Gradle or the Groovy console and you could rip through things, but what if you're setting up three dozen jobs because you branched three dozen modules? Uh, it sounds crazy at first, but this is a, this is a valid use case in, in uh, some of these companies. And so there are all these different tools and techniques and there's one guy was demoing this Jenkins DSL that essentially is a Jenkins job or several different Jenkins jobs. So you have part of the job that does the compile and part of the job that does the deploy and part of the job. And these individual pieces are not runnable. But from your other, from another Jenkins job, you can say, I depend on that one and the first one and that, oh, that email one. Yes, I need that. And essentially, you, you, uh, it's an a la carte menu of Jenkins jobs. And at first, it sounds really slick. Um, but another friend of mine, uh, Justin Ryan at Netflix, I, I'm going to give him a shout out, but he wrote a Groovy-based one. And what's beautiful about the Groovy-based one is you write a Groovy file and that Groovy file goes into source control and it can be merged, it can be branched, it can be edited. You know, If you do this all via the Jenkins job, it's sort of, you can do the, the source control behind the scenes for the configuration, but it's a bit late at that point. And you're front loading this stuff if you use the, the Groovy DSL, which I think is pretty slick. So... All in all, I thought it was pretty awesome conference. All in all, it, it seems like everyone is very moving to virtual space, right? There was little talk about, even the continuous deployment discussions or continuous delivery discussions were to dynamically provisioned uh, machines, virtual machines, either in the cloud or uh, in some ESXi server or something, right? So yeah, it was pretty awesome. So, so EJ, uh, how was the uh, vegetarian food selection this time around? <laughs> Actually, I was I, even that. I, Kosuke and Clouds uh, did an amazing job. It really was stellar. I was I was really shocked. Usually, people think uh, vegetarian fare is iceberg lettuce and you know like crappy salad dressing, and that's it. But they really did an amazing job. I was really well, impressed. So, th this is San Francisco, so you know we always have the the vegetarian option. Either way, big round of applause. I, if you, if anyone has the option to go to one of these, for sure take a look at what's going to be discussed. But hands down, it's really nice. And also, it's weird. I've been to different conferences where there's sort of a RelNG type DevOpsy tract or, or discussion, uh -huh. but this whole conference is about stuff I cared about. It was so bizarre to hear everyone talking and be. In, I don't know. I was sort of floored to see that there's this many are, people care. Are you in? Are you implying you don't care about release engineering? You're going to break my heart. Release engineering is one hat I wear, but again, it was if you have option, if you have a taste or desire to do any of the sort of RelNG dev opsy kind of thing, the Jenkins conference is definitely the Valhalla of uh, these types of conferences. 
And and so it's not just about Jenkins too, because there was a lot of topical content about. I mean, Jenkins was sort of the core part of it, but you were just saying you, know, you could talk about these other topics as well, and they they talk about that stuff. Yeah, there are all these other bits and pieces, but in the end, it's essentially how they integrated these tools and techniques around with Jenkins. Cool. Well, we'll have to uh, keep an eye out for when the next one is. Is it's is it a yearly thing, or do they do it in different places throughout the year? They try. They, they do several of these uh, in one year, and I think this year was a little, from what I was, the people I was talking to, they said it was a little bit ambitious this year, so there was one, two, three, four, five, five, five of them. One, oh, two. wow. So usually they do, I think, two or three. All right, well, we'll, we'll have to uh, look for the next one, and then uh, we, can, we can check that out. All right. Well, uh, so I keep promising DevOps, Dear Abby, and I keep forgetting to tweet with the hashtag, and so you guys... EJ and Yusuf, you have to yell at me and remind me to, to uh, <laughs> tweet that so we can uh, do that segment again. That was a popular one. And you could always uh, tweet us about anything that's uh, been said on the show. We actually had some feedback about uh, somebody, some comments about open sourcing Solaris, uh, which was was interesting conversation on Twitter. You can find us at Shipshow Podcast on Twitter. Or if you need to email us for any reason, uh, crew at theshipshow.com goes to all of us. So from back in San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From Deep Woods, Boston, this is EJ Sermella signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. The days of the breaks may be just about over. Makes definitely special. Of the brakes, 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 the brak